What's up, everybody? So I want to let you know that the Alpha Brain Golden Ticket Sweepstakes are still going on. And that's just a rad opportunity not only to stock up on your Alpha Brain or give Alpha Brain a try. Because if you haven't tried Alpha Brain, it's definitely one of those tools that's different than any stimulant you've had and gets your brain firing in an absolutely different way. And that's what our clinical research has shown, and that's what everybody who's tried it. You know, we've sold over a million bottles of Alpha Brain, and the results are in. It works. It's awesome. So this is a great opportunity, though, because if you get the Golden Ticket Sweepstakes, everybody is a winner, and there's a bunch of cool shit that we're giving away, from kettlebell sets to different other products, to discounts. Every single person is going to be a winner if you go to the golden ticket sweepstakes so check it out on it.com slash golden ticket and then enter the code and fill in the entry form there's going to be a grand prize for one of you which is going to be a trip out here to austin and on hq so you'll be able to come hang at the hq and do all the awesome on it things so definitely check it out go to on it.com slash golden dash ticket and get your 30 count or 90 count bottle of alpha brain I started taking fulvic minerals about a year and a half ago, and I noticed a dramatic difference. I started talking about it on the Joe Rogan Experience podcast because it was so significant, even though Onnit didn't have a fulvic minerals product yet. It comes from this compound called Shilaji, which you can imagine is like super old plants that come from the Himalayas. And these plants, you know, what makes plants so valuable is a lot of their vitamin, mineral, and enzyme content. But when you get to the Shilaji, which is this ancient plant and mineral deposits, it's basically all of these plants boiled down to their essential mineral and acid components, this substance called fulvic acid. And what it does is it starts to fill in all the gaps with your nutrient absorption, your mineral absorption, and has a dramatic impact to overall energy. I just felt like I had more gas in the tank. I felt like my systems were running more efficiently. Some of the clinical research shows it benefits to endurance, so that you can have more actual energy, more cellular energy, more physical energy, helping with sleep, helping with muscle adaptation, helping with nutrient absorption so the other foods and compounds that you do eat get absorbed into your body even better, and even with testosterone production. And of course, if you're an athlete or somebody, this won't supersede your natural negative feedback loop. This is not gonna drive things so high that you're gonna fail your drug test, but it is gonna support your body's natural ability uh, to produce things like your adequate hormones, energy, and the things you need. Uh, we offer two different types. We have a mocha flavor and then the unflavored. The unflavor is pretty acidic. The mocha adds some of that kind of sweet mocha flavor so that you can mix it with water and taste a little bit better. But I highly recommend giving it a try. Go to onnit.com slash Aubrey to make sure you lock in your discount and then navigate to the fulvic minerals. Onnit.com slash Aubrey and navigate to fulvic minerals. What's up, fam? This is Aubrey Marcus. Nope. It's not. It's Kyle Kingsbury, and I'm standing in for my good friend and co-worker and colleague and teacher, maestro, Mr. Aubrey Marcus, who was in a horrific fucking car accident over the weekend. Uh, thankfully, he's healing up, and he will be back on track very soon here. But um, hadn't recorded his intro, so here I am to tell you a little bit about this guy we've got on the podcast today, which was recorded prior to the accident. Michael Scott Moore, who was kidnapped as a journalist by Somalian pirates for over 900 days. Uh, he's written a book about it. Aubrey and him sit down in Venice, California, Venice Beach, and take a deep dive into what went down during his capture. And if you guys have time, send Aubrey some love through the social media channel, through the, the airwaves, the astral, whatever you feel, we'll get it there quickest. 
Just give him some love. Send him some healing. I know he appreciates you all. And thanks again. Michael, thanks for coming by, man. Thanks, Aubrey. Yeah. So in one of the intro pieces you sent me, you used the phrase, curiosity killed the cat. Mm -hmm. And when you think about that, you think about a cat that's playing around Mm -hmm. and maybe they run into a wire that they didn't see. But for you, your curiosity took you to an incredibly dangerous place. Mm -hmm. So you kind of had to think, man, I'm really kind of laying it out there. But that seemed to be kind of what you do is just to go investigate really scary, unusual, dangerous things. So did you have trepidation when you were going down to the Somali coast? Oh, yeah, obviously. Yeah. Um, It's not all I do, but uh, I I don't let, I I had investigated this story um, uh, about pirates for a long time. Um, And so I, I was, I laid plans very carefully actually. And I traveled with another journalist named Ashwin Rahman, who has been in and out of war zones for most of his career. So he's from India and he took up a special interest in Afghanistan and he'd been in and out of Somalia too. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, we, we laid our plans pretty carefully. We found security. You had, your, you had your travel buddy. Yeah. Who had some experience and some shit. Yep. And yeah. as soon as he left, I got kidnapped, as a matter of fact. <laughs> the fatal flaw. Uh, the fatal flaw. You lost no, I think they were actually looking for both of us, um, yeah. as a matter of fact. And um, it was just his good luck that we took a different route on the way to the airport and it was on the way back from the airport that I got captured. Wow. Well, tell us, tell us a little bit more about that because I mean, you really wanted to, it sounded like you really wanted to get in and go a lot deeper than most people were going. I mean, your refusal to stay at the normal hotels, you know, you're, oh, you're in willing, Djibouti. Yeah. That's different, but yes. Um, I, I did as a, as a rule, I like to see, you know, a country on its own terms. Um, and it surprised me in Djibouti, which is another country in the Horn of Africa, close to Somalia, um, that a lot of Western journalists stayed in a luxury hotel. So it seemed <laughs> useless to me. But that's one reason that's Ashwin and I met there in 2009. And that's one reason we got along was that we were both staying in um, fairly cheap hotels in town, you know. Yeah, really trying to get the get the actual scoop. But I wouldn't say that I was trying to do something more dangerous than other journalists had done. So I think that's a misconception. Some people mm-hmm. think, that, well, you shouldn't have gone to Somalia at all. Um, I think that too, in retrospect. But um, you know, there are journalists, Western journalists, in Somalia right now. Um, it's not an unknown thing, uh, and where I was going was not a place where, where other journalists had not gone. In fact, my security had taken another journalist there just a few months before. Yeah. So give people an update. If someone is hearing Somali pirate, maybe they've seen the Tom Hanks movie. Maybe mm-hmm. they've seen like, but give us an update on like what's really going on and then walk us through um, your kidnapping because obviously I want to get into that. Yeah. Um, Somali piracy um, flared up in the early 2000s off the coast. Um, and it's died, it died down while I was a captive there, <laughs> which made me feel like a profound idiot. But um, I, you can say that there was a Somali pirate era now between t- about 2005 or 2007 when it really took off and t- about 2012, 2013. Mm-hmm. Um, there's still some, pi- some hostages there in the hands of Somali pirates. They're f- they seem to be four Iranian fishermen that were captured in the meantime, a couple years ago, uh, and a couple of Kenyans who were handed over to pirate gangs. So the pirate gangs still exist. And I think the bosses have decided that 
piracy isn't as lucrative as they thought it would be, or it's not as lucrative anymore. Sure. And so they've moved into other businesses. But there are still skiffs cruising around in the in the water out there looking for ships. They're just not as successful. So it's it's kind of the African warlord model. It's yeah, not just exclusive absolutely. to Africa, but That's basically. Right gang of people get together, get machinery of whatever sort they have, in this case, boats, mm -hmm. and then take what they can. Yeah, boats and SUVs. That's one reason for the title of the Desert in the Sea. It's very much a land-based operation too. And mm -hmm. um, in fact, a lot of the guys that I met were not disgruntled fishermen necessarily. They were um, militiamen, clan militiamen who knew, knew how to use a rifle. Mm -hmm. um, and those warlords who are just businessmen with hired guns can move into many other businesses too, including weapon smuggling or whatever. Yeah. All right. So you're thinking that you say you were going to the airport to go home. Uh, yeah, not quite. I, uh, Ashwin and I had spent 10 days in, in Somalia and gathered some pretty good material. And then he went to Mogadishu, which meant an extra trip to the airport. So we went with him. We decided to all stick together, um, to see him off. And then he, he got in a plane successfully and um when we piled back into our car and drove back into town into galkayo um there was a, a truck waiting for the car and so i'm imagining a movie where like the truck is like sideways on the road and you like kind of not, not like blocking traffic but it was waiting for us and when it saw the car it moved and it was a truck with a cannon bolted in the back an anti-aircraft cannon it's called a technical in that part of the world um it's a fairly common sight actually because of the somali civil war and uh, we had we had had one actually on the on the way out to Hobio, um, as part you of had our, your own cannon. We had our own technical, yeah, with <laughs> our guard team. Yeah, no, they yeah. they and this was possible, very possibly the same one. So in other words, it belonged to the same clan, um, and it was a different set of soldiers that yeah. that that flowed off of it. But it was some it was gunmen who were expecting to find us there. So in other words, our location had been ratted out to somebody. So walk us through the escalation of your oh shitness <laughs> as, as this happens, right? Like the first, there's a first like, uh-oh, and then yeah. there's the, the real oh shit. The, well, at, f at first the driver slowed down and said, technical, we don't know what kind. And then um, my, my fixer translated that for me. And then he said, oh, it's one of ours. So in other words, he recognized it as something clan affiliated probably the same one that had taken us out to Hobio. Um, but we didn't recognize the men. And um, the, the technical came up to the, to the car and I, my mind reeled, you know. I, I knew on some level what was going on. The rest of me said, just a traffic stop, no problem. You know, I've got my backpack with me, got my German passport, which I was traveling on. You know, this will all be over in a second. Mm -hmm. And in a second, the men came off the back of the truck and fired their guns in the air. Um, and so then that was, I knew that was like double O shit. At oh, yeah. that point. Then I knew what was going on. You know, in fact, I thought I was dead. Had you envisioned? Had you envisioned that potential scenario before? I mean, yeah. Yes. I mean, I knew how things got got done in Somalia. So yeah, I had envisioned things like that. Now, was there ever? Because I, even myself, I don't go to a lot of dangerous places, but I envisioned these various scenarios, probably prompted from Hollywood or whatever. Mm -hmm. Did any part of you like? go through any heroic maneuvers that you might try to m make in that particular situation? I, I had considered carrying a gun before I went. Um, Ashwin and I actually discussed it. And we both said probably a bad idea. Uh, carrying a gun was possibly a good way to get killed yourself. You yeah. Um, once they want you, they can 
they can take you basically yeah. we we had trusted in the the loyalty of the actual clan that was protecting us and obviously like i said there was the clan that that betrayed us so the people who you trusted a faction of them a or a faction of them yeah exactly turned yeah. turned against my fixer and mm-hmm. i don't i don't quite know how the, how close the betrayal came to our people the people that we actually hired i think pretty close but anyway the um the the clan that was protecting me rather than the other pirate group across the border that I was actually investigating is the one that captured me. Yeah. Wow. All right. So there you are. Uh, you hop in there, you know, SUV with the technical mounted on it, I'm assuming, right? Uh, no, the, the, or they just the technical was carrying the gunman and the gunman came off. They pulled me out rather violently from the car. And then they put me into a waiting SUV, another one that was waiting by the side of the road. And uh-huh. um, that's the one that drove me off into the Somali bush for yeah. three hours. I mean, it was a long way. And they had, when they pulled me out of the, sh- the, the car, they beat me on the wrist. They broke my wrist. They beat me on the head and bloodied my scalp. And then when I was in, they broke my glasses, which I was wearing. And then when I was in the actual SUV and we were th- sort of thumping along the through the bush not along any roads or anything like that my my scalp my head you know thumped against the the roof of the car and left Uh a blood stain on the fabric which is how i identified that car (laughs) the next morning for example wow yeah that's brutal um (laughs) so what is the what is the crisis mindset that kind of you know comes over you at that point is it just pure survival is it is does fear leave your body like what are you what are you actually feeling at that point um yeah no fear is one thing so fear and stress you you the 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 whole body floods with those hormones you know you t- you hear about cortisone flooding the brain yeah during um any kind of violent situation um i felt that and and there's a fear sweat that you you know that you don't normally smell in yourself uh-huh that all that happens and probably finely tuned um perception from your adrenaline being probably extraordinarily I think extraordinarily so. high yeah i think so and just anger yeah all right so then you know really what i'm think i'm most interested in is just to track your own kind of mental journey mm-hmm. and like how you stay um how you keep your mind towards the more positive side of things. Obviously it's going to wander into Mm -hmm. the darkness and into the depths. And Mm -hmm. I want to talk about that, but how you kind of keep yourself in a state, because you hear different stories from different prisoners of war and different things. And Mm -hmm. one of the biggest deciding factors, whether someone survives is how they can handle their own mind. That's right. Whether they get very, you know, whether they give up completely and, you know, kind of surrender to their demise or whether they, hold themselves to another different um pattern so so yeah talk us through that a little bit well i mean if you if you read other prisoners stories if they were in for a long time i (coughs) I don't think maintaining a positive worldview is is how they survive Mm -hmm. so um it's certainly not how i survived Uh, i did not maintain hope that was not the way to do it i uh because every time i tried to hope for something um it was those expectations were dashed sure so especially a few months into the my captivity after i'd been held on a ship and everything else 
um, I was being held on land, land, and the guards would say, "Michael, don't worry, you're only, you're getting out in a month. You know, you're going to get out in two weeks." And I would be stupid enough to believe them, and so that woke up my hope, and I hoped to see my family and friends again, and, and mm-hmm. it would all be over, and you know, no problem. Um, and then two weeks later, the letdown was brutal. I mean, because was I, that part of the psychological manipulation that they were? I I think they really just wanted. I think they were thinking in terms of yeah, hope will keep him alive. Just keep his hope alive, you know, yeah. and then keep him sort of strung along. And it's not like it uh, pacified me. I was still angry at them, of course, but I did attempt to live, you know, through positive thinking. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, so it was not the way to do it because the hope is a cycle. Uh, hope and despair is a breaking wheel. That's how I experienced it after a while. Uh-huh. And um, it's like, you know, the wheel of fortune you see in some old now, Buddhist paintings. You have to detach yourself from that in order to survive. Yeah, that makes sense. And did you make a distinction between hope and faith? I mean, was there a faith that you were going to survive and a faith that you were going to make it out? There was no faith I was going to survive. Not, uh-huh. None at all. Yeah. No. So you had, you had made peace to a certain degree with your death. Yeah, I mean, I had, I had, at some point, I thought negotiations just weren't going well at all. Um, something's wrong. Maybe there will be a rescue attempt. If that happens, maybe I would die. I mean, there's a good fifty percent chance that I would die. So yeah. I, I assumed that that I had to assume that things were going to end badly. Um, and so I struggled with that for a long time because I, then the question is, well, should you just end it now? Should you just commit suicide or should you try to kill the guards? And in the meantime, you're feeling guilty for getting yourself in, into this position too. Sure. Um, so I, I was not, um, it was not a question of faith. It was a question of learning to live from one moment to the next. Mm. Almost like a forced staying in the present you know because all the thoughts especially if you start indulging that why did i do this yeah what was the reason you know how could i have made this choice all of these different hypotheticals Mm -hmm. that will just almost put blame on yourself i I, I absolutely did that yeah and then that that just makes things even harder Mm -hmm. um what was the uh so who were they in contact with and what were they trying to negotiate for, just so people know? Uh, they claim they were in contact with all kinds of people, but um, really they were in contact with my mother and um, they first demanded $20 million um, ransom and they held on to that demand for a long time and then eventually there were there were real negotiations, but they, they didn't move logically. Yeah. And what was your, you know, what were they feeding you? What was your beans? Beans, (laughs) just beans. I mean, as long as I was on land, it was beans and maybe pasta. Um, Beans and pasta and boiled potatoes on the pasta. And eventually I rejected the pasta and Mm -hmm. just wanted the boiled potatoes. Occasionally boiled goat for protein, but like once a week. Mm -hmm. So by the time I got out, I had a very serious protein deficiency. Mm -hmm. The the end... um, um, at the end, my, my immune system had actually started to break down because the nutrition was so terrible. Um, but the one big respite from that terrible food was, was being held on the ship. So they put me on board a, a hijacked tuna vessel, and all of a sudden my, my food situation was better because we had fresh fish and we had 
uh, a working kitchen, a working Chinese kitchen, Chinese food from, you know, from wow. the mess in the back of the, the, the ship. So. Yeah. Did you have any, did you develop any kind of affinities or any kind of, were there some guards that were, you kind of felt like, okay, this guy's of the, of the worst of the villains, this guy's the best, you know, and were, was there any other, or other prisoners or other people who could kind of make this less miserable? Yeah, definitely. On the, on the ship, there were, there, there was a crew of 28 men, uh, all hostages. And I was placed on with one other hostage. So with the two of us that made a total of 30 hostages, um, for the summer of 2012 on this ship. And we all got along pretty well. well we didn't all get along pretty well. There were some ethnic problems actually on board the ship. Um, <clears throat> but we so, oh, you consolidated. Mean among, among the captives? Yeah, among the captives. They were still holding on to races. Yeah. They're captives on a Smiley player boat. Yeah, and, they and they're still being <laughs> Yeah, because they couldn't communicate. They, could, yeah. they had no common language. And th this yeah. is common on, on, um, on ships on, in, in the maritime industry. I think this is a common thing. Um, they had to speak through a pigeon, and it was, it was totally in w w inadequate um, yeah uh, so yeah there was some obvious sort of national tension <laughs> among the groups yeah but as a as a rule we we closed ranks against the pirates and we could of course. you know we sort of could sort of commiserate with each other five guys spoke english from the philippines so we got to be friends with them I got to be friends with some other guys from the cambodia even though i spoke no no khmer and so on um, Vietnam, same thing. Um, but th those th those guys um, were also suffering. I mean, they, they spent more time in Somalia than I did in the end. Mm -hmm. Now, thirty. Of, so there was thirty of you. How many of the pirates were on the boat? Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> I thought about that uh -huh. uh, because I wondered whether we should do something about it. Um, I, I suspect there were an equal number of guards yeah. at any given time, but they were not always in sight. So we, we could see maybe 10 or something like that, but there were always a lot more. Mm -hmm. So we could never count them. That was the problem. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, his, I, I suppose that, that Steven Seagal scenario, you know, is just running through your head. Which one? I uh, like, well, whichever movie. I don't know. Right. They're all yeah, terrible yeah, and they're all the same. Boat. No, and, what was running through yeah. my head was, so there, there's another journalist. I think it was name. Under Siege. It was on a boat, right? Wasn't that the one that was on a boat? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. But the, the, there was, there's another journalist named um, David Rode, who I'm friends with now, who had been captured by the Taliban um, while he was working for the New York Times. And he escaped. And I had read his story in, the, in a series of pieces he wrote for the Times. Uh, so he was on my mind, especially when I was on the boat. Mm -hmm. And... Um, you know, that was a heroic thing from my point of view. Yeah. Um, I, it turns out he was on the board of the Pulitzer Center on crisis reporting, which had given me a grant. So he was following my story really carefully. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't quite know that, but we were on each other's minds in some yeah. way. You know? That's interesting. Uh, was there ever, I mean, did the military ever have a, a plan in place to send in SEAL team? Almost certainly, yeah. 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 It just never got signed off on or whatever. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, fair enough. If the, you don't want SEALs risking themselves in a situation where the intelligence isn't good, you know, or where all the, all the elements aren't in place. So that's, yeah. that's, that's fair enough. Um, and also, you know, I'd prefer to have a, a cautious president in, in charge of something like that than a reckless president. Mm -hmm. um, so talk us through the events that transpired that allowed 
you know, that led up to your release? Um, so first of all, to answer your other question, I did get along with a few of the guards. Some of the yeah. guards were, were gentle compared to, and, and willing to talk to me, willing to sort of communicate a little bit. Um, and, but since at the, at the end of my captivity, I had completely closed down any predilection for optimism. Um, when even the friendly guard said, Michael, you're going free. You know, I didn't believe them. Mm-hmm. Um, so a, a car arrived in the afternoon and um, one of them said, Michael, your car is here. That's a little bit weird. And when I came out, there was actually a bundle of money that the men were in, wrapped in plastic, cash, that um, the men were excited about. And still I thought, don't know. And they, they're like, pack your things. We're going to drive you to the airport. I'm like, all right. And so f- I did pack my things, but I still well, wasn't sure. How many sure. things did you have? I had, uh, I had you acquire things. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I had uh, a razor, for example. I had a toothbrush. Um, the, the guards had actually given me some coffee, but I couldn't use it because I, I had no coffee maker. So uh-huh. I don't know what they were thinking. Um, You'd whole, smell it. whole bean coffee, Kenyan coffee, whole bean coffee. I think that was, they knew at that point, that was a few days before I released, they knew at that point I was going free. So they, I don't know, somebody splurged. <laughs> this is not even in the book because I, I couldn't make sense of it, but um, yeah. it was true. I, I had to improvise. A, a, um, no, I couldn't, I couldn't use that stuff at all, actually. But yeah. um, the problem was that, okay, so I put my things together. I had some notebooks too. I put some, my things together in my bag, um, sort of tied it up with a rope because the bag wouldn't close. And I thought, well, I'm going somewhere. And then they changed their story. They said, okay, we're not going to drive you to the airport. We lied. We're going to take you out into the bush and give you to some other Somalis. And I nearly bit that man's head off. I'm like, I knew it. You know, you guys are just selling me to another gang. My, my, the whole thing is going to start over again, and I'm going to be here for another year mm-hmm. or more. Um, so I was really angry. And so I, even though I was in the car being driven to freedom, I was boiling mad. And I, I looked around at the, the town, I'm like, well, you know, looks nice out there compared to what I've been living in. It was still a rundown part of the city. Um, and then they gave me to another Somali in the bush. And he said, no, you really are going to go, go free. And he put me on the phone with my mother. Wow. Put me on the phone with my mom and another negotiator, and they were in the same room in California. And so they had arranged, actually, uh, a payment. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. To get you out. What was the, what yeah. was the price? The final price was $1.6 million. Mm-hmm. So that was my mother who talked them down. And I have to say, the Somalis blinked. So they came down precipitously at the end there. And yeah. the, no one's quite sure why. Um, but I noticed some signs of labor unrest among the guards. So in other words, they... One of them told me, but they, they had threatened to stop working and stop guarding me because they were tired of it. It was going on for too long. And um, they, I think they had stopped getting their pocket money, which they got every yeah. couple of months or so from the bosses. Where'd that money come from? Yeah, good question. I mean, it, no, I mean, my, my mother raised it. Yeah. Um, she had to scrape it together through uh, family and friends, but also some magazines I'd worked for and some institutions in the U.S. and Germany. So like a... Private GoFundMe. Oh yeah, of sorts. Yeah, not not online, not <laughs> in public, but yeah, yeah. So then, at what point? At what point did you let that, let all that go, and really recognize that you were free? What was the moment where you're like, 
I really, really am free. Well, so in that second car, the Somali put me on the phone with my mom and she could finally tell me what was going on. Um, I had still had no clue, you know, uh, but at that moment I knew it was real. Um, I was not, I think I write that I, I was not elated because elation wasn't quite the available. Thing. <laughs> it wasn't yeah. available, exactly. Uh, but um, I think I lightened steadily during that afternoon while I was driven to a plane. So they drove me to the airport and a, a Cessna was waiting for me with a very skilled bush pilot uh, <clears throat> named mm-hmm. Derek, who's, who's a wonderful guy, by the way. Yeah. And where did he take you? Uh, he flew me to Mogadishu. Yeah, and then the U.S. Air Force landed a, a C-130 right behind us, and um, they flew me to Nairobi. Finally, 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 finally out of Somalia. Yeah, yeah, that first tri- plane trip, I wasn't even out of Somalia. <laughs> no, um, so probably sitting on the U.S. Air Force plane. I mean, hugging a U.S. pilot. That probably had to be the moment where. Yeah. There were some um, FBI agents and some BKI agents. So I'm also a German citizen, and there was um, the German version of the FBI were there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think two of each. Um, some American military. Mm-hmm. The, guy, the, the crew of the plane was wearing pair, um, your jumpsuits, so mm-hmm. they were ready to jump out of the plane if, if necessary. Yeah. Um, I was well taken care of. Yeah. At that point, I mean, there had to be a point where you just start weeping and let it go yeah you know like i I relaxed i think i started weeping when i saw my mother but um in in berlin a few days later but yeah no it uh, once i was in nairobi too i had a few days to relax in nairobi i also broke down Yeah, yeah for sure what do you now looking back on it i mean this is an experience that i mean point zero 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 one percent of people are having mm-hmm. in western culture i mean what is uh what is the perspective that you can get on it How, is there a way that you can turn this into you know in true stoic fashion saying like you know what i'm grateful for this in some in grateful. some particular way you know or is this yeah. still in, in your mind like what the fuck <laughs> <laughs> Um, somewhere in between. I'm not sure I'm grateful. I know, I know Solzhenitsyn wrote in the Gulag Archipelago that at some point he was grateful for his jailers um, for throwing him into a Soviet Gulag. Um, I'm not there yet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't say I'm grateful for what happened. Um, but it's not... what it, What's important... So first of all, I wouldn't have been able to talk to you about it like this before I had written the book. Mm-hmm. You know, writing the book made me conversant with the material mm-hmm. and made me fluent with it. And it's important to keep that that fluidity um, because it's uh, while I was in Somalia, California, and um, Berlin seemed like another planet. And now, obviously, captivity in Somalia seems like another planet. Yeah, you have to keep that. You can't just shove it away. You can't. You you can't give in to that notion. It's not another planet. Um, and there are two experiences in one life. And um, and Somalia belongs to you know, the rest of us. I mean, it belongs to this earth. So um, you can't just shove it away and pretend it didn't happen. That's, I think, a really important point because I think we tend to disclaim these events and places and areas like, ah, yeah, that's over there. That's Mm -hmm. not our deal. That's not our issue. That's not our, that's that thing. Which is obviously not true. Which is not true. That's how piracy started. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And, And really having that universal 
perspective are really like, no, this is everybody's mm -hmm. issue. Yeah. You know, all of the conditions that are leading up to the to these gangs and these warlords and everything like this is a world issue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. And I think that's probably some bit of perspective that this really drove home in an incredibly intense way for you. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, the, the Somalia is chaotic for a number of reasons. Um, uh, colonialism is one of them, but it's not the only reason. Um, and it, the, the chaos on land absolutely needs to get fixed before all the other problems are, are going to go away. Um, what's not true is the, that we needed to wait for full order on land before uh, the piracy went away. The piracy actually reduced a little bit just because cargo ships have learned to protect themselves. Mm. Um, so that was one small bit of order, but it's very, it really has nothing to do with the Somali people. Um, I think what also happened is that uh, pirates who were popular at first because they were bringing money into certain communities became unpopular because people saw the, the bad impression they were making around the world and also because they were bringing violence to certain communities. Mm -hmm. um, and that was certainly true in the case of my gang. In yeah. fact, two days after I left, there was a shootout among all the guards, uh, sorry, all the, um, some of the top bosses um, who were surrounded by guards loyal to themselves. And um, at some point, the, one of the guards started shooting and five, two top, two or three top bosses and two mid-ranking guys lost their lives. Wow. So that helped um, damage the pirate gang. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Now, is there, is there like when you're sitting down and you got like a really good sandwich or a really nice meal now, is there that perspective, that contrast that makes everything now a little bit sweeter? I mean, have you experienced that side of things where it's like, man, this is, we're out here in Venice, California and Abikini and it's a sunny day and I can get an almond milk latte. And is there that moment of like, God, I really appreciate this life more because yeah. of what I went through? Yes, but that, that makes it sound a bit like gloating. It's more that um, I've learned, so from the moment I got out, I was just <laughs> grateful to have another life. I was grateful mm -hmm. that I was no longer, you know, thinking I had to die. Um, and that that gratitude is a is a is a change. It's a revolution in my own, you know, thinking. Um, and obviously, since things have gone better, I I get tempted not to feel gratitude. Mm. And um, I have learned how to go back into that period of my life and and use that as a reference point to exactly. build gratitude. rectify my mind. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it seems like it'd almost be hard for you to complain about the normal shit. Now. I don't complain. You know, like, I don't complain. oh, fucking traffic. I this get, is I, bullshit. I get angry at traffic, but it doesn't go. It doesn't last very long. My mom doesn't. My yeah. mom is the most patient person in traffic now. Yeah. And I mean, she lives in L.A., but um, she's she has really. She says that too. She doesn't let small things bother her anymore. Yeah, it's just like a recalibration <laughs> entirely. Uh, how about your thoughts about death? I mean, uh, clearly this is an opportunity where you were meditating on your potential mm -hmm. death mm -hmm. for a long time. How has your perspective surrounding death changed? Well, I mean, in that, that approach about hope that I mentioned is, is, was the approach to death from mm -hmm. my point of view. So um, death is a fact and there's not much you can do about it, and including conceptualizing. So coming up with all kinds of ideas about death is not going to help the fact of death, you know, mm -hmm. um, and th so that that notion of turning down your 
your your temptation to conceptualize things and theorize about a lot of things um, was the vital effect of being a captive. I would have to say that you you went in and you you had notions of what the future might be, whether you should be optimistic or not, whole theories about this or that, and a couple of years of captivity can take care of those things. It boils down these notions that you like to believe yeah. or that you like to project forward into the future. So much of our suffering is because of those mental machinations projecting into the future, going through a, a million different potential outcomes yep. that could be... That's a loud siren. Yeah, projecting into the future, going through all of these different potential mental outcomes, actually living, you know, through your imagination, living all of the worst case scenarios. I mean, I'm a, I'm a, yeah. I'm someone who does that. Right. You know, where I'll go through and I'll live ten horrible things that just happened, mm-hmm. none of which actually happened nor will happen. Exactly. And it takes me out of enjoying whatever I'm doing in the moment. And I think this is a, a like you were saying, it sounds like you just have no room for that mm-hmm. when you're a captive. That's and right. so that's a skill of, all right, I'm just not going to go down that, mm-hmm. that rabbit hole yeah. anymore. That's a skill that you could take from this. Right. If I, if I had taken a lot of those thoughts seriously, I would have killed myself. So in, in other words, I, I thought about killing guards. I thought about ending myself, which would then end the problem for everyone else, including any seals that might have to come get me including my mother who had to worry about it every day, but it was not a solution. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you had to accept what was going on at face value and live with it. And that's, that's the approach to death too. Yeah. <laughs> what was the closest point you got to killing yourself? Did you think about like, what was the way you were going to do it? Did you have, you know, was it ever pretty yeah, close? There was a, there's a period where I had to make a conscious decision almost every day, whether, I was going to do something like that because the the guns were there. The the men just sort of sat around with their Kalashnikovs on the floor and and watched me, you know, in in the room or out of the room and chukat, which was their drug. Um, They did try to get up and take their guns with them, but they didn't all the time. So sometimes I was in an empty room with a Kalashnikov. And then I, I mean, my mind went like that. Oh yeah, no, I had to think very carefully about whether I was going to do it. Um, And, I didn't, and I'm glad I didn't. Mm-hmm. Well, because is then it's just then I mean that's so hard to control the mind because then it's like, mm-hmm. well, I could take a few out and then they could shoot me. Yep. You know, or I could just shoot myself, or mm-hmm. I could all you know, those try to possible. take the gun and make a run for it and get a car and you yeah. know, all of these different different things. Yep. The, but here you are, so you chose correctly. I, I chose correctly somehow. Um, I, you know, I could have died in other ways too. I could have just died of malaria at some point. I could yeah. have died of somebody could have shot me by accident. So, um, you know, I could have made the right decision and then died a few months later anyhow. Mm-hmm. Uh, but w- for a while, so I also thought about escaping quite a bit. And for a while, um, this Frenchman was a hero of mine because on the BBC when I did have a radio I heard about a Frenchman who'd escaped from some uh, Islamists in Mali I think and he his guard actually went into the bathroom to pray but left his gun outside and um, the the door was also lockable so this this wonderful Frenchman 
managed to lock his praying guard inside the bathroom, steal the guy's gun, and get out over the wall. I'm like, okay, I don't have guards who pray in the bathroom. They, do, <laughs> they pray in the open. I, I don't have a lockable door. Um, and the, the, in fact, the doors to the compound were open and closed by somebody who came and went. So the keys weren't even in the compound. Um, you know, I imagined all the things I didn't have. Mm -hmm. But then I started to think, okay, what do I have? What can I work with? And mm -hmm. there was a moment um, where I almost ran over the wall. I mean, I almost had a few steps in my mind that I took. But the other thing this guy did was he got on the back of a motorcycle in Mali and the guy took him to a police station. I'm like, okay, not sure the the guys out in the in the town where I was, Galkayo, are going to be friendly. Not sure the police are going to be friendly. Yeah. There's no, a lot did to you think even, forward Did you to. even know which way to go? I... No, not immediately. I, I had an idea of where I was. I certainly knew which town I was in, although they lied to me about it. Yeah. Uh, I knew the police were corrupt. That yeah. was one problem because we had paid a visit as journalists to the police station. I'm like, I'm not sure I would go there. But there was a UN compound outside the, the town um, that was run by friendly people. Um, you know, these possibilities were there, but it, it, it would have taken a lot of really good fortune, strong yeah. in a row. Yeah. What a, you know, I think that, um, you know, there's a saying like, you don't know yourself unless you test yourself, mm -hmm. you know, and I think going through this, you learn, you got to feel like you really know, you really know yourself, you yeah. know, your, your dark thoughts, your depressive mm -hmm. thoughts, your mm -hmm. shadow thoughts, your courageous thoughts, your heroic thoughts, your, mm -hmm. all of these different aspects of yourself. Do you feel like now, man, I really, I really know who I am at this point. Well, you don't want to be smug about it. So I, I'm certainly more I'm more acquainted with those things than I was. Mm -hmm. um, one, one thing that's true, though, is that I, I sat there thinking about my past a lot. So I went through whole chapters of my life over a few days. You know, mm -hmm. it's just you sort of live there in your mind. Um, and so I got to know myself that way, which was interesting. And so some of that comes into the book, too, because, you know, for a long time, nothing happened. <laughs> so... Uh, just so you know, the, there are long stretches where actually nothing worth reporting happened. So I, I just, condense those just, and I just, bring in some <laughs> of my past. Yeah. And that's how the book keeps moving forward. Um, just beans and thinking. Be, beans and thinking. Beans and memory. Yeah. Um, so it's also a memoir, The Desert and the Sea. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. I mean, it's, uh, I asked you right before you started you know, was it worth it? Yeah. <laughs> and you didn't take it's, No, it's not. It wasn't. It, <laughs> yeah. my, my grandmother died while I was there. Yeah. No, that's not. Um, no, it wasn't worth it. It wasn't worth uh, the pain I, I put my mother through and my family. Yeah. But nonetheless, you do your best with the lot that you're given. That's what I mean. And, and this is yeah. what this book is. It's that's your right, opportunity yeah. to put this out there in um, whatever way you can and the best way you can and move forward with your life the best yeah. you can. Because... You know, that's a choice I think we all have. We don't have it. You didn't have a choice whether you got kidnapped or not. You just have the choice of how you respond right. to that and what that's you right. do with it. That's right. And uh looks like, once again, you're making making some of the right choices. I hope so. We'll see. One step yeah. at a time. Huh? <laughs> For sure. <laughs> um, the Desert and the Sea. And it's available everywhere. Yeah. Amazon, Audible. Do you read your Audible on this? Uh, I, no, an actor does. But uh, yeah, no, it's yeah. available. Mm -hmm. Very cool. And so what's next for you after this? I'm working on another book. Yeah, it's hopefully about, it's less immersive. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a novel, so it'll be, um, it, it won't involve a whole lot of dangerous travel. 
Yeah. Um, it's about drones, which I have an interest in because of this experience, but I'm not going to say much more than that. Um, I, I do, you know, I do want to write about the world at large too. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm, I am working on a magazine piece about um, a trial elsewhere in the, in the US. But um, so it's a mix of journalism and fiction that I'm doing. But That's awesome. Well, appreciate you making the right choices so we could get a insight and an inside look into <laughs> something just, that no, no, hardly anybody will ever get to experience. I'm just so. glad to be here. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> for sure, brother. Anything else uh, you'd like to point out to anybody? No, I, th I think that's all. All right. The Desert and the Sea, Michael Scott Moore. Thank you, my friend. Thank you, Aubrey. Yeah.